Today's scripture reading is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and then also 20 through 25. It's also the text from which Pastor Paul will be speaking God's word to us. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit at your, in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They shall write them, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. And then in verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your own, to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteous for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The word of the Lord. All right. Hello again, Cornerstone. Great to be with all of you here uh, this morning. Uh, I am Pastor Paul. I'm one of the pastors of our church, and I'll be sharing uh, our message for today. And so um, today's message, we are basing it off of our theme for this year, uh, which is generation to generation. I'll, I'll go into that a little bit more in our message. And uh, I wanted to mainly talk about passing on our faith, to pass it on to the next generation. And again, we thought this would be appropriate as we begin a new year and think about how we as a church can grow as a congregation, as a church all together, uh, all three congregations as well. And the reality is, though, that this is very hard to do, this task of um, passing on our faith to the generation, next generations. Uh, throughout church history, there have been a lot of ebbs and flows of generations failing to do this, failing to pass on the faith. And one example is from uh, colonial uh, America, colonial New England to be specific. Um, the first settlers there in the 1600s, uh, if you know anything about them, they were actually very biblical Christians when they first came over who fervently believed in the Lord. But after 20 to 40 years down the road, their children and grandchildren were pretty much non-believers. They were uh, nominally Christians, Christians in name only. And it even got to a point where, because their membership of their churches were so low, that they included these nominal Christians as members of the church. So even if you didn't go to church regularly, Basically, if you came like once a year, they're like, okay, you're still a member, so we still have a bunch of people here at our church. And, um, and they even gave them voting power. 
for these people who even came once a year or so. And, you know, if you think about it, it's kind of silly uh, for people to be able to still be a member if they don't really go to church or they don't really express faith anymore. And uh, if our church did that, let's say all the uh, kids who grew up in our church, they moved elsewhere, they don't really even go to church anymore, but they still had voting power in our church, that wouldn't make sense at all, right? So that's why our church, we, if you don't attend for a year regularly, then we actually uh, take you off of our active membership. Um, and so it wouldn't make sense to do something like that. But this is what the church had become back in that time in the 1600s in New England. They basically had lost a whole generation of believers. And then, if you know history, the Great Awakening came, and you know, a revival came in America and things like that. Um, but that's what happened in those times. And as a result, um, I believe that the current generation always has to be thinking about how we are passing on our faith to the next. And if we fail to do so, then we do a great disservice to the body of Christ. We, right now, are in unusual times where our young generations, um, most of the younger generations, we call them Gen Z now, and, and they are being taught and indoctrinated by our culture and society. Uh, and it is like no other generation because of the internet, because of uh, our access to information. They are being taught and indoctrinated like no other generation before them. And young people are being trained to view the world through the lens of how the culture is dictating to us. So lens of science, identity, race. And a lot of those things are not totally antithetical to Christianity, but a lot of them are antithetical to Christianity. They do not fit in with what the Bible tells us. And we are in a cultural place, not so dissimilar to where Mark and Rachel are serving in Japan, where most things about being Christian is basically totally against what the world tells us. It is countercultural to what the world says is right and good. And so do not be fooled. If we're not being discipled by the church or discipled by Christ, we are being discipled by something, by our culture, by what we learn in our schools, by what people around us tell us. Our Screens are discipling us. Social media, entertainment, um, other pressures that we face in our world, they are reframing how we think, and especially our younger generation, how they think. And everything now, especially if it's viewed in the lens of identity, like sexual identity, right? your sexual identity defines who you are, your gender identity defines who you are, your, your racial identity defines who you are, your eco economic identity, that is who you are, political and so on and so forth. And these are all of the world. These are all secular identities. This is not what the Bible teaches us. These are all against what the Bible says is our identity because our identity is found in Christ alone. So if we as a church, if we are not actively engaged in countering these societal doctrines with our own doctrines of the truth of the Bible and of what Christ taught us, that we are not properly witnessing to the next generation. That doesn't mean we need to be some heroes or we need to be the saviors of the world or of the church. No, that's not what I'm saying. Of course, God is in control of all that. We do not have that type of power. But it is our responsibility, according to the text that we read, to pass it on and instruct 
the next generation. And if we fail to do so, we dishonor our Lord. And even though our failures will not ruin the church, it won't you know, bring, you know, bring the universal church down in, in ruins, it won't do that because God will raise up his church no matter what. But our church, what we do, that may cease to exist. Our children may suffer the consequences, and they may never know who Christ is. So that's why our theme for this year is uh, generation to generation. It'll be further introduced in January, on uh, January 16th, which is our annual meeting. So please, a plug for that, please come to our annual meeting on January 16th. It's a combined service at 10 a.m., so we won't have our 1130 uh, English worship that day. But the reason why we have this theme is because we are a multi-generational church. We have babies and toddlers. We have uh, elementary school students. We have youth group students. We have young adults. We have people in their 30s, their 40s, 50s, and we have all the way till 80s and 90s. So we are in a unique situation where we have many generations in our church. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing that our church, because a lot of churches don't have that. And so it is beautiful that we do have that. But there are challenges that come with that, many challenges that come with that, let alone, lest we forget that we are not only a multi-generational church, we are a multilingual church. We have three different uh, services in three different languages. And so we have different cultures in that as well amongst our congregations and even within certain congregations we have different cultures as well. So there's a lot to navigate just in our church context. And in addition, we're also in America, where there are other cultural aspects of living here, of being American or living in America, and the social aspect of being a church here in this country and here specifically in New Jersey, where Christianity is no longer a major religion by no means. And we are also a first world country where we do not have the same problems as a second or third world country, and, and our lives are much more complicated as a result, and there's a lot more to consider. So, you know, we're not going to be able to address everything um, here today, but we will address some of the issues that we face of our, in our current situation. And I hope we can look at the scriptures and see the ways in which God instructs us and teaches us to pass on the truth, the faith that we have. And I hope we can all see how important it is to do so, and how we can carry it forward in our time and place with our lives. So let me just pray for us real quick, and let's dive into our text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, how you teach us the truth through your word. And so, God, even though there are other things that claim to be the truth out there, Lord, may we be redirected by what the word of God tells us how it speaks to us through your spirit, and how we have come to believe and trust in Jesus Christ who lived and died for us. So God, help us this year, and especially right now as we see your word, how can we live out this multi-generational vision that we have as a church to pass on our faith, to serve the different generations and not be so fixated on our own generation. So God, teach us and lead us by your spirit here today. Work in us, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, as Pastor Jeff read, uh, our text comes from Deuteronomy 6. 
And for some background, the book of Deuteronomy is part of uh, the, the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Moses. Um, the Jews would call this the Torah. And the word Deuteronomy derives from the Greek for second law, um, which some had originally thought meant a copy of the law, but that is actually inaccurate because although Deuteronomy is not a new law by any means, but it is a preaching of the original law given to Israel, which was ultimately the Ten Commandments, the original law given to Israel. And scholars believe that most of these chapters were given as sermons or speeches by Moses on the plains of Moab during their uh, 40-year wilderness time that we see in the book of Numbers. And so Moses is uh, urging his people here in Deuteronomy. He's preaching, giving sermons, exhorting and encouraging Israel to faithfully obey the law that was given to them 40 years ago. And the theology of this book is focused on convincing Israel to trust and obey God and to conquer the land because they failed to conquer the land before. They failed to trust in God in doing so. So Moses here describes the nature of God in Deuteronomy, his oneness, how he is the one and only God, how he is worthy of our worship, and how he's incomparable to any other gods. He declares the power of God over the nations. But we see that he is also a God of grace, and he is a faithful God. He's faithful to his people. So we are here at this point of Deuteronomy where Moses is laying out a general covenant rules or laws for them. So he begins by saying in chapter 6 that we are to love and fear God with all of our soul and might, and it should be on our hearts. Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 6, let me read that for us again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. Then immediately after this, we see that we are to teach our children diligently when, which we'll get to a, a little bit later. But the foundation here, the most important command is to love God. To love our God with all of our soul, soul and might. And that command should be on our heart. Love God with all our heart. So the first way we can pass it on is to love God earnestly. We are to love God Sincerely, we are to love God with conviction, wholeheartedly having this command in us. For us Christians, this means that we are to love the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are reminded that we only know love because Christ first loved us. So the genuine love that is from Christ Jesus, that permeates our hearts. That is something that compels others to see God and Jesus for who he is because we live sincere lives convicted by the Holy Spirit. We have seen it in many generations before as well, but the younger generations now especially are very sensitive to inconsistencies and insincerity. Many of us here may have felt this way about Christians. Some of us are millennials and Gen Z here, and we are the younger generation, but this will apply to generations moving forward as well, and I believe with our college students, our teenagers, and so on. 
younger generations uh, in general tend to be more sensitive to inauthenticity, to hypocrisy, and can turn from the faith of an older one because of that. Uh, if you look at uh, some American church history a little bit, uh, this happened with the baby boomer generation, the baby boomer youth who turned away because the church actively supported racist policies. Of course, this is obviously a, the white church, which was the main church here in America. And many churches actually opposed the civil rights movement. And many even now are turning away because of the way the church continues to fail to address racism and, and downplay systemic inequalities based on ethnicity and race in our country and our world. Many younger generations turned away because we failed to love our neighbors, especially by the way we treated homosexuals and have ostracized them. And even our fellow Christian brothers and sisters who struggled with it, we have made them feel like their sin is the greatest evil in the world, and that they had to pray their homosexuality away. Although it is a sin from the word of God, we have made it seem like heterosexual lusts and passions are more natural, while what they do is disgusting and unnatural. And this is how the church has treated homosexuals. They turned away because of how, another reason why they turned away is because of how the church has become synonymous with right-wing politics, specifically the evangelical church. Even though the gospel and the church is far greater and bigger and more important than any political association, any political party or ideology. The church is not a civil magistrate. We are an institution that declares the truth. We are ministerial. We can't force you to do anything. We can't put you in jail. No, all we do is we minister, we encourage, we shepherd, and we t declare the truth of the gospel. Other people have turned away because of how the church deal with abuse not only in our homes, but in the church, where many churches refuse to go to the police when we should have especially dealing with children, minors being abused, just to try to save face as a church, where women would plead for the church to do something about their spiritually abusive husbands, but the church saying, oh, we don't have enough evidence, would do nothing about it. where we would say we would discipline, discipline those who were abusing when there was enough evidence to find that they were abusive, but still did nothing to properly discipline, to properly restore them. Instead, we are permissive of their behavior, and we leave them unchecked without any accountability because we're afraid of conflict and confrontation. Even pastors are guilty of this, of spiritually abusing their congregations, guilting them, shaming them, berating them because of their poor performances, because they don't come to church enough, or because they're not good in their duties, they're not evangelizing enough, they're not bringing enough people to the church for the sake of numbers, for the sake of growth. And we have failed as a church to challenge these types of pastors because, yes, they may be abusive, but they're often successful even if that means success comes with brokenness and hurt and pain along the way. I'm not stating hypotheticals here. These are things that 
happen and continue to happen in the church. And that's why these are, there are people in the American church specific, specifically who are deconstructing their faith. That's kind of popular in you know, niche Christian you know, thinking where Christians are reflecting on all the things that they have learned and experienced and wondering if they really should be a part of the church, if this is worth it to be a part of this institution or even to follow Jesus. When younger generations see the church, this is their impression of us. Not because of our particular church here, not because we're necessarily guilty, but because the universal church has done these things and they continue to do these things. Some will see us as hypocritical, uh, racist, disingenuous, insincere, lacking in love, lacking in any backbone to stick up for, for what is good. But that's why, brothers and sisters, may we love God earnestly. And may that love lead us to address these failures, repent of them corporately, show grief and hatred over these sins, and not just have self-righteousness saying, oh, that's not me, that's, that's them. And the church sins in these ways out of fear, fear of what others may think of us. If this abuse came out or if this horrible thing came out in our church, fear of the consequences that may come. The church fears of creating drama and conflict. We do this out of convenience because no one wants to deal with this. Of course no one wants to deal with this type of conflict and controversy. It is so complicated complicated and hard and tiring and uncomfortable, but because of our repeated sinfulness, we are hindering our witness, our witness of the gospel. So then may, may we at Cornerstone learn to confess and repent and learn from these mistakes, seek harm, ethnic harmony. May we be a church that seeks to care for the abused and call out the abusers and discipline them. Be a church that acknowledges that the body of Christ has ostracized homosexuals and treated them as other, even though we are just as sinful. That we are here to walk alongside them with their struggles. That's what it means to love God earnestly, to love God sincerely and genuinely. Because the great commandment is not only to love God but it is to love others as we love ourselves. And again, we can only love others because Christ first loved us. Only love for God only comes from the work of Christ and his love for us. That is where our love for God comes from. And that's, when, that's what then allows us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So if we are loving God wholeheartedly, then we are not to be hypocritical or inconsistent in our faith, but instead God has a transformational effect on everything that we do. So may we love God earnestly. The second way we can pass it on is found in Deuteronomy 6-7, which says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So this passage tells us to teach everyday gospel truths. 
The Bible is not just about knowledge. It's not just about learning things academically or just for the sake of knowing it. Of course, it's good to learn Bible stories and know them by memory and to memorize Bible verses. But again, it's not for the sake of knowing these things. It's for the sake of learning practical, everyday gospel truths. The whole point of the Bible is to live it out in our everyday life. It is to live it out in how we walk, sit, lie down, go to work, go to school, play, everything that we do. So the point of the church is to help each other live out the gospel accordingly and to live it concretely. So this is important to do as we pass on our faith to the next generation. And that's something we should be generally doing in our community. If we're not doing it in community, then how are we going to pass this on to the next generation? And that's the whole point of church community, for the purpose of living out the gospel practically. It's not just about sharing our feelings, sharing our thoughts, sharing our perspectives, or venting about our problems, which is fine and good, but it's about learning the truth and applying it to our lives and helping each other to accomplish that, even when it's not easy to do, even when it's so different from how we've thought or how we've been raised, even if it means having deep, difficult conversations. So I'm going to use a couple examples for that. So uh, this is relevant to a lot of us. So I'm going to use dating and marriage as our example. So let's start with dating. So, you know, we talk about dating a lot, uh, especially if you're, you know, out of college, who are looking to get married, possibly. So, we, you know, we talk about a lot about dating in, in that age. Um, and most of it is probably very casual, right? But when we talk about dating, do we do it biblically, right? I, ideally, when you date someone, your community should be a part of the process that helps you discern whether or not this person is the right fit for you for the purpose of marriage. And that might not be your church specifically, but it has to be other brothers and sisters around you that do this. Um, and how we should be looking for Christian holiness instead of just physical appearance or whether they're smart or funny, right? That's what we all like to say about who we look for. Uh, we should be encouraging each other to be dating for the purpose of marriage, right? Not just for emotional fulfillment, not because it might look cute for us to witness, or just for physical pleasure or for social clout. No, for the purpose of marriage. And we should be addressing concerns to our brothers and sisters who are dating, if we have any, right? If there are obvious tensions in the relationship, things that are not right that we can see, if there are physical boundaries being crossed that we have witnessed, if there's cohabitation before marriage, if the couple is spending too much exclusive time together and ignoring everyone else in community, if there is someone else unhealthily, who is unhealthily dating around, right, going on too many dates with too many people, or just being shady. These are the things that we should be speaking up about in our community. We should not be afraid to address it. And, th and for those of us who know that we have struggles, who may have issues and struggles, you should feel comfortable to bring it before others around you to help you to navigate them, to help you work through these issues or disagreements that you may have in community. And most importantly, we should not see dating and marriage as the end-all, be-all of life. That shouldn't be considered the pinnacle of human happiness because it is far from it. 
the Bible tells you it's far from it. Jesus is what makes us happy. Not dating, not marriage, not sex, not having family, not having kids. It is Jesus. Let us remind each other of that truth. And maybe not idolize or venerate dating or marriage in an unhealthy way. So let me move on to marriage specifically now. And it's very similar where the challenges are similar but maybe a little different. But when you live life together, we can see the unhealthiness in people's marriages at times. Or there may be concerns that we have and we can speak into that in each other's lives. One big issue we see in marriage is the issue with in-laws and making sure there are clear boundaries with in-laws so that your decisions are not driven by what your in-laws tell you to do, but you actually decide as a couple because the Bible tells us to leave our families and to join together as one as a couple and not to bring your in-laws along to tell you what to do with your life. We are to talk and share and speak about these things. Another big topic is kids. Right? How, how can we practically speak practical truth about children? If you look at the world, the reality is that birth rates are, de- are declining quickly, especially the past 10 years. You know, a big reason for that is that marriages are being postponed and childbearing is being postponed to older ages and that increases risks or uh, lowers the chance of having children. And I know that most people intend to have children when they get married, but the reality is that a lot of times they're unable to because for whatever reason, they've waited uh, too long and are unable to, and delaying having children is a big reason why a lot of people cannot have as many children as they have originally desired. And that's whether by choice or circumstance, people are just unable to do so. And this is not speculation. This is what the Population Reference Bureau is saying about our society. But how does the Bible view family and children? Well, the Bible tells us we are to be fruitful and multiply. So even though we may feel insecure and we may feel we have every reason to delay having kids, whether it's financial security, career advancement, whatever it is, the Bible says if you are called to have children, you should have children. If God has put that on your heart, that should be a priority in your life. And these are the types of everyday truths that we can share with one another. I just wanted to share one more thought on kids. I have a kid, so this you know, speaks personally to me. You know, we're, we're in a generation now where a lot of parents actually com- complain a lot about kids. And I see this among my friends. They, they complain a lot about their kids. And I'm sure this is not new to our world. I'm sure previous generations have done this as well. But I know a lot of people right now act as if kids are the bane of our existence, right? Because we have to cater to every whim feel like our lives have essentially been ruined as a result of our kids. We complain that we don't have enough free time to hang out with our friends, to play video games, do the stuff that we used to do because of our kids. But when we speak in that manner, when we talk about our kids in this way, it is not healthy. Children are a gift from God. And again, it's our mandate, creation mandate, to be fruitful and multiply, which implies that we are to have more than one kid if we can. We are supposed to have kids and be grateful that we get to raise them up in the Lord. And in fact, if Christians don't have kids and do not raise them up in the Lord, then who will be the ones to reach out to the next generation who do not know Jesus? 
the church is not raising kids to do that, who will be the ones to do so? Do we have to pray for another great awakening to happen? Maybe God will hear us and do that. But we do a great disservice to our next generation if we do not raise up our kids in the Lord, if we do not have kids as well. A friend told me a story about how he had to rebuke a young father once because he basically was so bad about complaining about his kids. He had kids at a really young age, and so he complained how his kids ruined his life. How, oh, like, I, don't, I didn't get to, you know, have my, my 20s were lost. I didn't get to travel. I didn't get to, like, do what I wanted to do with my wife, you know. And, you know, oh, my kids just take up all my time, all my money. And the pastor, he was a pastor, um, he responded to this uh, young father, and he basically rebuked him by saying to the effect, I don't have it word for word, but to the effect, hey, not only did you sign up for this to have children, but your kid didn't sign up to be blamed for this. Don't blame your kid for what you did. If you feel that your pleasures, your entertainment, your comfort, your peace of mind is more important than bringing a life into this world and raising, up to know, raising them up to know Jesus, and that is on you as the father. Your priorities are wrong. You need to take that up with God because objectively having a kid is far more important and worth so much more than all of those things. We can teach these everyday gospel truths in practical ways, have honest conversations about our struggles. If we struggle with this, we should be honest about sharing these struggles, but we should also be willing to receive the truth as well. Of course, we have struggles with raising kids and, and dating and, and being married, and we have fears, and, and our values may be misplaced as a result, and the gospel may not be shaping our lives the way it should. We should be okay with that and okay with people speaking the truth to us because we're called to shape our lives through the lens of Scripture and the gospel, whether it's dating, marriage, kids, work, school, business, everything that we do. We're called to do it for the glory of God. So if we share these everyday, practical, concrete gospel truths with each other, then surely we can do that with the next generation and pass on these truths to them. The last way we can pass it on is to share our experiences, to share your experiences. In verses 20 to 25 of our text, we see an example of how we can take the doctrines and truths of God, of what he did for us, like how he delivered Israel from Egypt and Pharaoh in our passage, then how God gave them statutes to fear him and love him, and it will be good for them to obey these commands. In other words, we take the doctrines of faith, of who God is, and we apply it to how God saved us. And we share what God has done for us and share these experiences of how God captured our hearts with Jesus. How believing and trusting in God has changed our lives. So that means we are open about our struggles. We are transparent and we live out this repentance that God calls us to. And we are not to be overly formal about how we express our faith. I think that seems too distant and impersonal when we do that. When we share our experiences, when we do it in, in a personal way, people see our hearts. 
people see how God has transformed us through Christ. And that is what truly makes a difference in witnessing to the next generation. One youth student uh, told us in a small group discussion, and we were just talking about um, whether or not we have experienced God before, right? We've seen his goodness, that we know God intimately. And he answered by saying that when he hears heartfelt testimonies of how God has transformed someone's life, it truly draws him closer to God. It reminds him that God is indeed real and God has saved him and continues to save him through Christ each day. A lot of times we try to put on this facade or persona about our lives. We're trying to paint this picture of, of how we have a good and perfect life. But the reality is we know that we are all messy and we live messy lives. And there's no reason why we can't be open about our struggles to grow and be transparent about how God is working in all of us and how we are learning to repent of our sins and we're learning to be obedient to God and to live out his great commission. So then this encourages us to go out and actually engage with the younger generation and share our stories. And, and honestly, we who are older, should not expect the younger to approach us. That is the wrong mentality, especially if we're talking about children, youth, college students. No, we, as an older generation, have the responsibility to be the ones to approach the younger. And, of course, the younger need to learn how to be better about engaging with the older generations and appreciating them, even learning to just greet them and being friendly, and especially to our elderly in our church and caring for them as well. And I'm not giving anybody a pass about that. But we, as the older, we have the main responsibility, and it falls on us to initiate a relationship with the younger generation, especially our youth and children. So learn to say hi to our children. Learn to get to know them, know their names, know their grades, just even simple things. Get to know their parents. Form relationships with them. Get to know the youth in our church when you get a chance in the future and engage with them. And, 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 want, and uh, we would want you to share your stories and experiences with them as well. And if you want to do so, let me know. I will gladly invite you to share your story with our youth, and we can find a time for you to do so. When we are genuine in our faith, when we live it out sincerely, when we're wise about imparting these truths, we, we set up a great foundation to pass on our faith. And again... This can only happen because of Christ. History has shown us that this is hard to do. This is very hard to do as a church. Even if we do everything perfectly, there's no guarantee that any of this would come to fruition. It means nothing if Christ is not working in our hearts. If Christ doesn't do his transforming work by his spirit in the next generation, all of it really means nothing. And so we pray and we go to Christ and ask him earnestly, to help our next generation. So all of our hopes for them are bound up in Christ. And the reality is we will not be good at this. We will be imperfect in many ways. And so again, we go to Christ and we remember that he upholds the world, that he is sovereign over all things. And he brings about seasons of wilderness and seasons of revival. And God is faithful. And he will continue to be faithful. And we know this by what he has done through Jesus Christ.
the victory over sin and death. We have that assured in us. So let everything we do be undergirded by that truth, that we would trust in him to accomplish the work. And when the work that we are called to do, may we be wise, selfless, and faithful to him, to his command, to make disciples, to pass it on, so that our next generation can know who Christ is. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for this time together to think about how we can help our next generation. Lord, it starts with us as a community. May we learn to be a community that can speak truth to one another, to love God sincerely and earnestly, and to share our experiences and stories with each other. Help us, O God. You are good. You are mighty. You are faithful. Lord, we need you. We need your love. It is nothing without your spirit in us. So may your spirit move in us here today so that we can be a church that learns from the mistakes of the church in the past and the the mistakes that we continue to make now as a church. Lord, help us to navigate these things, be wise, be loving, so that our next generation can be faithful followers of Christ, to know you, to live passionately for you and for your kingdom. Help us to do that as a church this year and the years to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.